You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, thank you for joining us for the Friday, February 24th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, waking at five every day could improve your health from Fortune and how COVID-19 changes the heart even after the virus is gone from time. Plus, what really matters in preventing dementia from Barron's and more time permitting. Here's our first report. Waking up at 5 a.m. every day could improve your health. Here's how to make it work for you by Alexa McHale from Fortune. Seize the day, we're told. For some, that means getting up at the crack of dawn, or more precisely, at 5 a.m. to jumpstart the day. The early morning wake-up has even become a TikTok trend, coined the 5 to 9 before the 9 to 5, where video montages illustrate a slow morning aesthetic of self-affirmations, workouts, and maybe even a head start into planning for the workday. It can make the rest of the world feel lazy. The pressure to be a morning person is pretty intense, says Samantha Snowden, a mindfulness teacher at Headspace, the popular meditation app. So will waking up at 5 a.m. make all the difference to your day? Some experts say yes. For starters, getting up earlier can improve confidence, Snowden says, because it can feel like an accomplishment. And there's something to be said for not constantly feeling like you're in a rush, which only elevates stress levels and negatively impacts mental health. It's like always feeling like you're behind in a race you can't possibly win, which isn't useful for motivation or positivity, says Dr. Nicole Benders-Hadi, a psychiatrist based in New York and the medical director of behavioral health at Included Health, about the typical workday morning. Slowing down helps our nervous system ease off the gas and helps regulate our thoughts, Snowden says. And if you can use those extra morning hours to make time for yourself in a way that calms you down, it can bolster productivity and make you feel less depleted by the end of the day. If you're contemplating rising before the sun, experts say you need to keep in mind the following. Don't sacrifice sleep. Choosing to move up that alarm should not come at the expense of sleep. Over time, a lack of sleep can lead to negative mental health outcomes like anxiety and depression and put people at risk for chronic illnesses like heart disease. Everyone has a different kind of job with different kinds of demands, and a lack of sleep can present many challenges for us as far as emotion regulation and our ability to focus, Snowden says. These are big capacities that we need to get through the day, to be productive and do our jobs well, and to be present for our loved ones, she says. More than a third of American adults do not get the recommended minimum of seven hours of sleep a night as it is, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. Prioritizing sleep means having good sleep hygiene, including waking up around the same time each day, limiting screens before bed, not consuming alcohol or caffeine in the evenings, and having a wind-down routine. If getting up at 5 a.m. every morning creates a barrier to you getting enough restful sleep, don't do it, says Bender's Hadi. You can slow down your morning without getting up super early. 
Waking up early helps diminish that uncomfortable feeling of being rushed. But Bender's Hottie says there are alternative, more incremental steps that can instill that sense of slowness without sacrificing sleep. One way is through choice reduction or limiting the number of things that you need to decide on the morning of a busy day when your stress levels tend to peak. Think about reorganizing your morning routine so you have less to do, for example. Lay out the clothes you plan to wear the night before, Bender's Hadi says. Prep your breakfast and lunch meals to go ahead of time, and do the same for any family members you may be caring for, she says. Snowden says you can spend 10 extra minutes slowing down, even walking a bit slower to the shower in the morning, not checking emails right away, and practicing a kindness message. A few examples, may my day be filled with ease, may I see possibility today, may I enter my first meeting with an optimistic attitude, she says. You're checking in with your body sensations, your mood that morning, and you're observing it with non-judgment, with openness, she says. That sets the tone, that sets the rhythm, the speed, and the pace of your morning, she says. Know your strengths and weaknesses. Bender's Hadi recommends we all be honest about whether a few more hours in the morning will improve our well-being. For those who work better without distractions, in a quieter environment, or who need a longer self-care routine to feel productive during the day, getting up early can help. You should also take into consideration whether the change in routine will lead to improved productivity or whether they will just be stuffing more into their day, she says. Regarding work, for example, do you have a set amount of work you need to accomplish each day where starting earlier enables you to finish earlier, or will getting up earlier simply add more to your plate, she says. Don't expect to adjust right away. Especially for the night owls, choosing to get up earlier won't feel comfortable immediately. The body's circadian rhythm, or natural body clock, needs time to adjust to the new routine, Snowden says. Instead, compliment yourself for wanting to engage in something that feels motivating and be patient, she says. Have an intention. On days when rolling out of bed feels downright impossible, it's important to return to your intention to get up, whether that's to improve your daily productivity or enjoy extra time to read or work out. Talking to other early morning risers can help you understand what motivates them. Wanting to follow a trend, especially on the hard days, won't be enough. You're going to kind of need to connect back to your motivation, Snowden says. What is driving this for you? And what do you imagine to be the benefits that you're really personally going to enjoy and get from this, she says. Up next, how COVID-19 changes the heart even after the virus is gone. A study adds new evidence that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, could have a lasting impact on the heart. By Alice Park, from Time. While COVID-19's effects on the lungs and respiratory system are well known, there is growing research suggesting that the virus is also affecting the heart, with potentially lasting effects. In a presentation at the annual meeting of the Biophysical Society, an international biophysics scientific group, Dr. Andrew Marks, chair of the Department of Physiology at Columbia University, and his colleagues reported on changes in the heart tissue of COVID-19 patients who had died from the disease, some of whom also had a history of heart conditions. 
the team conducted autopsy analyses and found a range of abnormalities, particularly in the way heart cells regulate calcium. All muscles, including those in the heart, rely on calcium to contract. Muscle cells store calcium and open special channels inside of cells to release it when needed. In some conditions, such as heart failure, the channel remains open in a desperate attempt to help the heart muscle contract more actively. The leaking of calcium ultimately depletes the calcium stores, weakening the muscle in the end. We found evidence in the hearts of COVID-19 patients abnormalities in the way calcium is handled, says Marx. In fact, when it came to their calcium systems, the heart tissue of these 10 people who had died of COVID-19 looked very similar to that of people with heart failure. Marx plans to further explore the heart changes that SARS-CoV-2 might cause by studying how the infection affects the hearts of mice and hamsters. He intends to measure changes in immune cells as well as any alterations in heart function in the animals, both while they are infected and after they have recovered, in order to document any lingering effects. The data we present show that there are dramatic changes in the heart, Mark says. The precise cause and long-term consequences of those need to be studied more, he says. Previous studies have revealed a link between COVID-19 infections and heart-related problems. A large 2022 analysis of patients in the VA system, some of whom had recovered from COVID-19 and others who had never been diagnosed, showed those who had had COVID-19 had higher rates of a number of heart-related risks, including irregular heartbeats, heart attack, and stroke. Dr. Susan Cheng, Chair of Women's Cardiovascular Health and Population Science at Cedars-Sinai, is studying whether there are any associations between rates of heart attacks and surges of COVID-19 infections in order to better understand how the virus might be affecting the heart. There is also early evidence showing that people with hypertension may be at higher risk of heart events when they get COVID-19. What connects the viral infection to the heart isn't known yet, but the body's immune system is likely a major contributor. It's been well documented that with SARS-CoV-2, the body responds with an inflammatory response that involves activating the immune system in a very dramatic way, says Marx. In the heart, it looks like the same inflammatory process is activating pathways that could be detrimental to heart function. But more research needs to clarify that process, says Dr. Marielle Jessup, chief science and medical officer at the American Heart Association. If the assumption is that the infection causes inflammation and the assumption is that the inflammation is precipitating more cardiovascular events, then how is it doing that, she says. It's also possible that viruses can infect and adversely affect heart cells. We're still at the tip of the iceberg with respect to understanding how COVID-19 affects health, says Cheng. Marx is hoping to get some of those answers with the animal experiments he plans to conduct. We hope to optimize the animal model to best reflect what we think is going on in patients, he says. We want to study at a very, very detailed level what happens in the heart when the virus infects an animal, he says. Ultimately, that knowledge will help to better treat people who might be at higher risk of heart-related problems from COVID-19, which could in turn reduce hospitalizations and deaths from the disease.
Marx has already developed a potential drug that can address the leaking calcium if that proves to be a problem with COVID-19. He is ready and eager to test it if his animal studies justify the experiments. Until more definitive studies clarify how the COVID-19 virus is affecting the heart, Jessup says she would advise her patients to control the things we know how to control, such as the risk factors that might put them at higher risk of heart disease to begin with, such as obesity, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. And with more data emerging, if people are getting repeat COVID-19 infections, it's also probably worth seeing their doctor to get their heart disease risk factors checked as well. We spend a lot of time telling people they should get vaccinated, she says. For people who have had COVID-19, we should also be making sure they know their heart numbers and make sure they know blood pressure. We know how to prevent heart disease, so let's do the things we know how to do, she says. Up next, here's what really matters in preventing dementia. It's not all brain teasers and crosswords. By Neil Templin from Barron's. Put down that brain teaser you torture yourself with and get your hearing tested. If you are interested in preserving brain function as you age, some of the clearest benefits come from staying socially connected, scientists have found. That means getting a hearing aid if you can't hear what people around you are saying. People with untreated hearing loss have a 90% higher rate of dementia than others in their age group, according to the 2020 report of the Lancet Commission on Dementia Prevention, Intervention, and Care. As America grays, seniors are looking for answers to make sure their cognitive abilities don't expire before they do. They are told to eat a Mediterranean diet, get enough sleep, avoid stress, walk 10,000 steps a day, lose weight. Which one of those things actually helps? Probably all of them. Barron's has been talking to brain scientists to learn what the research tells us about maintaining brain function. There is no one thing that protects against dementia, they tell us. It's everything, says cognitive neuroscientist Denise Park, who runs the Park Aging Brain Laboratory at the University of Texas at Dallas. There are hundreds of skills that people possess, and you lose a lot of them if you don't just interact with other people, but with your environment, she says. Park, who is 71 herself, makes a conscious effort to keep her brain working all the time. Even when I wait in line, I pull out my phone and play computer games, she says. I never have an idle moment, ever, she says. Little wonder that so many seniors are obsessed with avoiding dementia. Brain health is key for both happiness in retirement and, to a large degree, financial security. There is real evidence that people over 50 worry the most about dementia and beginning to lose their memory, says Jill Livingston, the University College London psychiatry professor who led the Lancet Commission on Dementia. It's financial, but it's also very individual, she says. Asked what she does to protect her own brain, Livingston replied that she lifts weights, tries to walk 10,000 steps a day, drinks moderately, and watches her blood pressure. The 63-year-old also had her hearing tested, found hearing loss that she wasn't aware of, and now uses hearing aids. The modern world places a premium on remaining lucid. The advent of 401k savings plans over the past 40 years has transformed all of us into our own pension plan managers. Whereas our parents and grandparents simply waited for the pension check to arrive each month, now we must make complex investing decisions on our own. 
Brain health is also a key for delaying or avoiding altogether the need for a nursing home, which can help preserve a retirement nest egg. William Bernstein, a former neurologist who became a financial author and money manager, says some mental slowing is inevitable as we age. He recommends simplifying your finances and going over your investment strategy with your children so they can take over if need be. There's a good chance you won't be as cognitively intact, and you ought to make provisions for that, says Bernstein. The Lancet Commission combined research around the world with its own research and found 12 modifiable risk factors in that aggregate account for 40% of dementias. Some are behaviors or conditions long associated with health problems such as smoking, heavy drinking, or diabetes. Others are more surprising. It turns out higher education levels early in life appear to protect against dementia later in life, research found. Working helps protect against dementia by keeping our brains engaged, scientists observed. The Lancet report noted that countries with lower retirement ages had higher dementia rates. Why might education and work be protective? Livingston of the Lancet Commission says challenging intellectual activity creates a brain with denser connections that allow it to keep functioning even with the inevitable deterioration that comes with age or disease. This capacity was called cognitive reserve by neuropsychologist Yaakov Stern of Columbia University. If you have cognitive reserve, you are more likely to survive without developing dementia, Livingston explains. We think education in itself strengthens the brain. It makes it more resilient, she says. Controlling hypertension is another key in protecting your brain. High blood pressure can cause tears in the white matter of the brain over time, says Park, the UT Dallas neuroscientist. If you get enough of those tears, you will have trouble transferring signals to the cortex of the brain, she says. In essence, your brain will work less well. Arterial disease also puts you at greater risk of stroke. You can have a large number of smaller strokes, some of which you're not even aware of, and the cumulative effect is substantial cognitive decline that impairs your daily life, said Thad Polk, a University of Michigan professor and cognitive neuroscientist who wrote The Aging Brain for the Great Courses. The Lancet Commission found that middle-aged people who have systolic blood pressure more than 130 have a 60% greater chance of developing dementia down the road. What is good for your heart is good for your brain, says Polk. He says numerous studies have found that exercise is one of the best things you can do to protect your brain. But when it comes to the brain, physical health factors aren't the entire story. A number of studies found that people who care for someone with dementia are more likely to get dementia themselves. Why? The answer appears to be that the stress of caring for someone alters their brains in ways that make it more vulnerable to dementia. Zachary Cordner, an assistant professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, has run tests on mice where he purposely stressed the rodents and found their brains changed. Mice, like humans, are normally social creatures. In one experiment, researchers would isolate a mouse all day to impose one sort of stress and then expose it to an aggressive bully mouse to oppose another type of stress. When they examined the mice's brains, they found changes in the regions of the brain involved in learning and memory, as well as mood, anxiety, and social interactions. It's clear these chronic stress exposures alter the stress system in the brain, Cordner says. As the human brain ages, it changes. 
Research has found that an older brain processes information more slowly. Seniors often have declining episodic memory, which is why they have more trouble remembering where they put the keys. Although the 66-year-old reporter writing this article can attest he had trouble remembering where he put them even when young. Older people have more trouble mastering large bodies of new facts, even as they may remember a familiar set of facts in sharp detail. None of this mean our brains stop working. To the contrary, an older person with a specialized skill or knowledge set may retain that to the end of their days. What their brain loses in processing power may be offset by increased experience in the world. And what about those brain teasers mentioned at the beginning of this article? The issue with brain games is there is good evidence you will improve at the brain games, says Polk of the University of Michigan. There's not good evidence that will generalize to other areas of cognition, he says. He goes on, there is nothing wrong with playing these games, but there might be better ways to spend your time if your goal is brain health, he says. Up next, six interesting facts about our hair from interestingfacts.com. Long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, streaming, flaxen, waxen, give me down to their hair, shoulder length or longer, hair. No, these aren't the words of a shampoo commercial. When American men were drafted to fight in Vietnam, their hair was cut short. Long locks on men became a sign of defiance, and such hairdos seemed thrillingly shocking to theatergoers who flocked to the rock musical Hair, which featured the song that I read above, and aren't you glad I didn't sing it, when it opened on Broadway in 1968. Hair has sent cultural messages for millennia. It also sends signals about our body chemistry, including our age and health, which may be the unconscious reason some of us get so upset about bad hair days. Here are six facts about hair that will show you a whole new side of your crowning glory. Although each person's hair is a bit different, one strand usually contains 45% carbon, 28% oxygen, and 15% nitrogen. Hair also contains up to 12 to 15% water and traces of mineral elements including copper, zinc, iron, and silicon. Our hair even contains gold, which is excreted from our bodies through both hair and skin. Babies have more gold in their hair than adults because gold is passed along in breast milk. Overall, the average human body is said to contain around 0.2 milligrams, less than the weight of a poppy seed, of gold. Some hair loss is normal. During your life, your hair grows, falls out, and regrows around 20 times. In fact, it's normal to lose 100 hairs a day and even more during the fall and spring. The reason may be that in areas with four seasons, the sun damages the hair bulbs during the summer, leading to hair loss in the fall. Winter cold restricts blood flow to the scalp, causing the spring shedding. The solution? Cover your head. However, if you're suddenly noticing much more hair in your brush or in your shower drain, you may be suffering from low iron or anemia. This is more likely in people who menstruate if they have heavy periods. People can also experience temporary shedding after a sickness like COVID-19 with the change in estrogen levels after pregnancy or stopping birth control pills or during menopause. Hair reveals stress. It's true, stress can make hair go gray or white faster. But there's good news, too. 
Gray or white strands can sometimes turn back to their previous color, according to a large international study in 2021. Just like tree rings hold information about past decades and rocks hold information about past centuries, hairs hold information about past months and years, the researchers wrote. These transformations can happen on hair anywhere on the body, sometimes quickly. One person in the study regained five hairs with color after they took a two-week holiday. Extreme stress can even turn hair white overnight, or at least very quickly. This may have happened to Queen of France Marie Antoinette before the morning she walked to the guillotine. Sir Thomas More's hair is also said to have turned white overnight in the Tower of London before his execution. Dermatologists now call this rare phenomenon Marie Antoinette syndrome. Wigs and hair dye are nothing new. Because hair reflects our mental and physical health, people have gone to great lengths throughout history to change its appearance. We dye away gray, use chemical products to fight hair loss, or wear wigs. Dye to camouflage gray dates back to at least the ancient Egyptians who used henna. The ancient Greeks used henna too and even colored their horses' tails with it. In the Roman Empire, blonde was a popular hair color. It had an exotic allure and was associated with people from Gaul, modern France, and Germany. Roman prostitutes were also required by law to have yellow hair to signal their status. Some very wealthy Romans even powdered their hair with gold dust. That was a more pleasant option than one dye that was used to turn hair black, fermented leeches. The first commercial hair dye was created in 1907 by a French chemist, Eugene Schuller. He initially called his creation Ariole, but later renamed it L'Oreal, which was also the name of the company he founded two years later. People save their cut hair. Among the sentimental Victorians, it was common to give locks of your hair to friends, family members, or lovers. The New York Public Library's archives contain, for example, an auburn lock from Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, a lock from Walt Whitman, author of Leaves of Grass, and a lock from Charlotte Bronte, who wrote Jane Eyre. To this day, we continue to value hair as a memento. In 2009, a bidder paid $15,000 for a lock of Elvis Presley's hair at an auction. That's actually cheap. In 2021, a jar of the rock icon's hair sold for $72,500. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.